You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. The section tonight is fairly long, so uh, I'm going to be a little bit more brief in my introduction. Uh, Again, you have the new page that has number six, seven, and eight on it. Again, that's the second page of the summary. Uh, I'm not going to go back all through all seven of those previous points. I will say that last week in that bullet number seven, what we talked about, and I, I find it still to be so absolutely powerful and necessary that we understand that, our, that the battlefield is our mind. But the weapons cannot, be, cannot originate in our mind. Our weapons, the scripture says, are not carnal. They're not found in our soul. They are spiritual. And as we discover, one of the things that's caused this to be such a problem is because we consider our salvation as something we did. It changes it if I did it to if something God did, because if God did it, now I have a spiritual reality. I have a spiritual reality that when Satan comes and says, I don't, and whispers to me, I don't think you're saved. I don't battle him from within my mind. I don't battle him from within my heart. I make an announcement from the spirit that no, because back here is what God did. This is when God saved me. This is when God established me as his child. And if, if, if I think that in deliverance, that this is the moment that I made it, I did something, then I will, have, I will lose the spiritual power in it because the next time I feel something different than that moment, then I will, it, it will waver. No, in deliverance was not something I did. It's something that the Father did. I mean, we have to get these moments just to a spiritual reality, which is, means that God did something on our behalf that we could not do. He overcame, he restored, he forgave, he loved, he brought healing. Because if then I, carry, I have this journal, and this is the, this, I've, I've shared this several times this week, that one of the reasons we live the Christian lives that we do and often find them powerless is because we have two things going on here at the same time. Yes, here is this battlefield of my mind and Satan whispering something to me. If you were really this, if you were really this, and he's whispering these things. But I have two things going on. One is that I have a, I have a personal journey that I'm on. And if in that personal journey, I have had encounters with God where God actually did something on my behalf, I'm building this journal of all these events so that anything that comes against me in my mind, I can pull from this personal journal and say, no, because right here, this is what God did on my behalf. He set me free. He saved me. He established that he, that he loved me. Jackie was in my office and she said last Monday night, she had, I think it's Monday, watching a movie. And she just, she just said, you know, after, and watching this movie, God, I want to be loved this I want to be loved that way. What was his answer? I love you that way. You see, that's a spiritual reality in her now. So that down here in her mind, if she has this question of, I don't know if God loves me. Oh no, Monday night after that movie, I said, and God said back to me, that's now a spiritual reality. That's a weapon. And her personal journey that she gets to pull from now, anytime Satan whispers and says, I don't think God loves you. Yes, he does. Monday night after the movie, he said, and I believe him. The other thing that we have is we, that we're also constantly receiving spiritual truth from his word. He's establishing truth. And I get to pull from that truth not because of something I did, but because of truth he revealed to me, I get to tell Satan, he said he will never leave me. He said he would never forsake me. I get to use this spiritual truth along with this spiritual reality. I get to use those things against Satan. I can roll them up, hit him across the head with them, hit him in the teeth with them. But they're declarations of spiritual reality, spiritual truth that we get to draw from, from his word and from the encounters that we have. 
and it, and it makes us powerful in this warfare. But if we keep thinking, well, salvation was a choice that I made and deliverance was something that I did and forgiveness was something I came up with, then we, we lose our power. We lose the great weapons. So we talked last week from the scene in the boat about this spiritual power because of these moments that we're now experiencing. And I'll tell you, the face of Christ, the Christian world will change when we start learning how to use spiritual reality as the weapon in the battlefield of our mind. The weapons are not carnal. They're mighty through God with the pulling down of strongholds. And when it says take captive every, every imagination, every thought, that's not my responsibility. That's, for, for me to do that sets me up for failure. I will not ever be strong enough to take captive those thoughts. I will never be strong enough to, to remove those imaginations. Ever tried it? Try it. See how successful you are. He said, no, you remove them because I gave you spiritual weapons by which to do battle. So that was last week. This week, if you want to go back to page 28, I believe, where we'll start tonight. Again, this is a long session, so I, I tried to keep my comments as brief as I possibly could. But the eighth section tonight is there will be no healing, no restoration, no deliverance, no repentance, and no salvation until all judgment ends. Now, we've experienced that here. We've walked in this greatly. The bitterness that forms when forgiveness is missing will harden the heart that is otherwise ready for restoration and healing. You come and you say, I, 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 I want to be past this stuff. I want, to, I want it to be behind me. I'm tired of this stuff. But judgment is still present. The, the judgment and the bitterness are opposite sides of the same coin. There will be no healing. There will be no restoration if that judgment stays in place. And this whole scene that we're going to watch tonight is about God dealing with our ability, our, our, our thinking we have the ability to actually judge. So that's where we're going, that's where we're going to be tonight. This scene is the cave and the conversation, uh, the conversation after profoundly teaches us of God who is in charge but not in control. Hard concept. We've been taught so long to say, well, God's in control. God's in control. We recognize we want to say it, but the reality is that I, that there, I can make a thousand decisions all on my own today that will affect the outcomes of my life. Big ones or small ones. Again, I could, go, I could choose to go lay down in, in the middle of that street and let somebody going down the street run over me. I have that kind of choice, real choice. Could do it. But I couldn't say at the end of the day, well, that's what God, that was God's plan for me. So we have to at least begin to acknowledge somewhere that God is very much in charge, but in control is a different conversation. And I'm not going to get into all that except where it's applicable tonight. So this, the first scene that we're coming to is Mackenzie and Jesus walk away from the boat and, and, walk on the, and begin to walk on the shore. Some of this I'm not going to comment on. Just listen to it, enjoy it, let it teach you. Yeah, wouldn't that be remarkable? And it's possible for us to live on top of the things that have typically buried us. We have that kind of victory. Right there for just a second. Not a huge point, but if there's going to be much freedom, if there's going to be much healing, if there's going to be much change in someone's life, we're going to have to recognize the place that religion has held, what religion could not do, what religion will never be able to do. I wrote here, there must be a recognition that religion and all of its rules and all of its regulations has not been able to bring the freedom and healing desperately needed. 
The law of the Old Testament, as described in the Scripture, had no power to heal or bring salvation. It could only show where the errors and mistakes were. Religion today brings much the same result. Relationship is the necessary means by which healing comes. There won't be any when we stay buried in religion. Because religion only has the ability to show you where you're wrong. I love the story. The, the story of Ruth. Because Boaz wasn't the nearest kinsman. There was one closer whose obligation it was not only to take care of Ruth and to take care of Naomi. And they come to him and say, there is this, there's a woman of your family and this, and this young lady, this, this lady that need and they have land and they need to be taken care of. And immediately the near kinsman says, I'll do it. He wanted the land. But then the message was, but you've got to restore life to Ruth. There has to be a willingness for her to have a child. And he says, I can't do it. It's a good picture of what the law could do, but what the law couldn't. The law couldn't bring the restoration of life. So Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, could not only take care of Naomi and Ruth, but he could restore life to Ruth. And they have a child whose name is Obed. Beautiful picture. Ruth, the beauty of a contrite heart. And Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, when they had a child, the, name, the child's name was Obed, which means praise. The natural outcome when the love of God meets the contrite heart. Praise will be the natural outcome. Now, this would be the proper time in our car because we, we, we would have 5-point, 10-point, 15-point questions as we would travel and have contests with the kids. This would probably, about a, be, a, this would probably be a 15-point question. Who's, who was one of the sons of Obed? Who what? Jesse. Who was the father of David? So Obed was David's grandfather. And we, see, and, and we see the connection. We see the praise. We see the life that's lived. Religion cannot restore. It takes relationship. And that's, that's, those are the comments that are being made. For just a second, because that comment catches a lot of criticism about this movie. I guess I, I can't say fully all that is implied here, but I, can, I, know, I know where I go with it. I don't want to be a Christian either when the Christian is defined by the way it's always been defined. I don't want to be a Christian who, where the definition of being a Christian is that I follow the rules, I get things right, I work hard to please God, and that's, what, and that's what a Christian does. We're busy working for him, and all those things that the Christian identity has always brought, because, because what Jesus is confessing is, I, you're not seeing much of that, are you? You're not seeing much of that traditional, typical definition of a Christian. But what are you seeing? You're seeing life, you're seeing relationship, you're seeing love, you're, he you're seeing healing, you're seeing restoration. Now, if you're going to define Christianity by those terms, yeah, it's like I told you this morning, I'm not naive and I'm not ridiculous. I don't intend to be. I don't mean to be silly in this statement. I know I'm not God. But when somebody looks at me, that's all I hope they see. I don't want them to see something else. I don't want them to see any other version. I want them to see God. And I only know one way to do that, and that's to let this God live in me who loves and heals and restores and builds and strengthens and renews and all those things that his presence actually does. So I, I understand why that catches a lot of attention, but the, but the next comments are, are powerful. I wonder how many people in their life would 
find that statement a little bit too relevant, a little bit too close to home. But I love the comment. I, I, I love what he says. I just want people to, to feel what it's like to be truly loved. Years ago, I was sitting in a healing conference in, uh, in Austin when I heard the teaching about why John described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because up to that point, it had always seemed to be a little bit of arrogance. He could have just said John. He could have said, simply said, Jesus said to me. But instead of saying Jesus said to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like, we know, we know they're talk, you're talking about you and it seemed odd. Until I heard that message. It was a team that had come out of Redding, California, that, was, that leads their healing rooms. And they had come to lead this moment. And they were speaking on this. And he said, the rest of the disciples were busy trying to say to Jesus, this is how much we love you. Peter trying to say, I love you so much, I will do this and I'll do this and, I'm, and make all these claims. They were trying to say to Jesus, in great assurance, we love you. What John understood before the rest of them and what we must discover for ourselves is that the greatness in this life is not saying to God, I love you, because he already knows that. The greatness in this life is finding within us, within the human capacity, the ability to let God love us. John discovered it before the rest. It's not how much I love God. It's how much I'm willing to let him love me. Because if I get that, if I truly get that God's desire is to ultimately and profoundly love me to the degree that he would send his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe would have eternal life. Behold what manner of love the Father's bestowed upon us that we could be called the children of God. That that's the kind of love. If I believe that, and we find this in these moments of healing, found within this story, I know it's a movie, but found in this story, what would change in our perspective of what God wants for us if we simply believed he loved us? Because what would we ever have to live with? What would ever but be permanent that wasn't just a healing away or a restoration away, a renewal away? He loves me. I just, I have found it amazing that most believers can say it out of their mouth but don't believe it in their heart. That there's some condition around it, there's some circumstance. Yeah, he loves me, but I know what I did, I know where I've been, I know what I've said, I know what I've seen. So we put the conditions and he's saying, there are no conditions. I love you and I want you to know it. We see here the necessary ingredient that must replace judgment and bitterness and forgiveness. It must be love. Few rarely find it. And then I go next into that part about John and him discovering it first. The next scene that we're gonna come to, and there's a little, we're gonna watch between here and there, but the, the next scene we come to is Mackenzie in the cave. There's so much symbolism in all that we just watched because healing and restoration is a journey we often walk alone. As a matter of fact, one of the, one of the strangest things that occurs in ministry and ministering this to others is getting them into a place where the others that have affected their lives no longer become factors. You'll understand why in just a minute, I think. But I have to get it carved away that it, it wasn't your mom, it wasn't your dad, it wasn't your sister, it wasn't your brother, it wasn't your husband, it wasn't your wife, it's not your children. Because if 
if I look there, then the distractions are immeasurable. Because the healing and the restoration and the deliverance and the power doesn't happen because of these situations out here. Now, they might be affected, but the restoration and the healing happens because there's a point, a fixed point between me and God. And it's necessary in ministry to get, when, when, if, for the real differences to occur, is to carve out all the extra. I let them talk. I want, if, they, if they have things to say, they need to say them. But where my responsibility in ministry is to get it back to the point where it's not the confusion of all the relationships that are around it, which is where all of our attention has been. It's between you and God. It's that, that's where the restoration, that's where the conversation has to be held. The, com- the comment that was just made, the place where I stopped, today is a serious day with serious consequences. In that we know the outcome of the scene, we can truly understand that wisdom was bringing Mackenzie to a point where he would choose to continue or relinquish his history of judgment. Everything here, everything we're going to see is telling us judgment must stop. What is the chance that our judgments are correct? Zero. Discernment's different. But our judgments that are born from our minds, conclusions drawn from our hearts, will always be wrong. Always. Unless I'm completely able to turn off my own history, my own personal biases, my own personal judgments, the things that that I've seen, the conclusions that I've drawn, the education that I have, unless I can turn all that off to say none of that stuff will have an effect on on the conclusion that I'm drawing, then my judgments will be imperfect. All judgment must stop. I can tell you this is the critical difference between someone who walks into your life seeking help because if they sense that they are being judged, it will feel just like everything else and every other place they've ever been. Judgment will be, it will just be familiar and the conclusions will be the same. But when they walk into a place and there is no judgment, they can't shock you with what they said. They can't alarm you with, in, with, with, with any conversation and they begin to recognize that there's something different here. There is no judgment. Why would I judge someone that when, when I can certainly say my judgments would be incorrect? Why even start? Why go there? I can't mention the details of this situation, but I had a, a woman tell me last week, she's talking to me about someone in their family, and I, please don't misunderstand this statement. But, but the, 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 the young lady told her grandmother, Randy is the only one who sees me differently. Well, please understand that has nothing to do with me. But when somebody walks in, I want to see what God sees. I want to see that goodness. I want to see that beauty. I want to see that, what's so rare in them. I want to see that strength. I want to see everything that he has placed in there because the brokenness is going to show up. It's going to be obvious. I want to see what God sees. I want to talk to them about what God says, what God sees, what God knows, what God reveals. I want to tell them that he says that they are loved, that they are beautiful, that they are powerful and strong and filled with the goodness of God. I want to see, I want to tell them what God sees when he looks at them. Judgment erases that. And she's telling Mackenzie here, This is a serious day with serious consequence because if you leave this cave still judging, where's it going? It ain't going anywhere. What is judgment up to this point got him? Did you hear back there when it just said under there he scoffed? Where'd that come from? All that had ever happened, everything behind him caused that moment. 
Let's go, let's go a little further. McKenzie's reaction demonstrates where his mind and his heart have been for several years. What does he immediately conclude when he hears those words? You are here for judgment. I'm fixing to be judged. Man, we have been trained. We have been trained. Does it shock you? It did me when I first heard it taught a few years ago that God has no interest in judging you. As a matter of fact, he won't do it. The book of John says it plainly. Jesus announces it. My father doesn't judge you. And by the way, I don't judge you. And by the way, the spirit doesn't judge you. Well, I thought that was such a big role of God. I thought he was my judge. Nope, he was. What was the verdict? Guilty. What was, what was the punishment? Death. Judge's responsibility is over. Verdict, guilty. Punishment, death. The judge's responsibility is over. What do I need now? I need a lawyer. I need a paraclete. I need someone who will come alongside and change this story. We see, judge, we see God. We still consider God to be our judge. You can look in the scripture. I'm not making this up. He's not our judge. Is he still the judge? Yeah, because he's got judging to do at the end. It won't be of me. I need a judge anymore. My guilt has already been established. The punishment has already come down. It's already been erased by the blood of his son. I'm free from that con condemnation. I'm free from that judgment. I'm free from that punishment. I know it. I believe it. I absolutely stand on that fact. That has been erased in our story. But most of us still believe that God has some, un, some strange, not, maybe not pleasure, but some strange satisfaction in being our judge. Jesus said, I came to reveal your name to them, your name's Father. How often, or how, even how much would we want as a father for our children to look at us and call us the judge? Would it be a complimentary term? Would it be because of good attributes that, that were being witnessed? No, we wouldn't want that. Jesus calls him father every single time until that time on the cross. Not once did Jesus look to his father and say, hey, judge. That's not the perspective. But Mackenzie has lived in a place where he thought God was judging him ever since this moment in childhood. It'll come out in just a minute. He is wondering when he will receive or if he has already received the wrath of God that he expected for the death of his father. He's expecting punishment. He's expecting retaliation from God for the fact that he killed his father when he was a child. Guilt had ravaged his world. Don't be surprised when somebody comes in and visits with you if guilt or regret or brokenness hasn't ravaged their life. Things shift here. I'm just going to go straight to the notes. The recognition that we are totally inept when it comes to judging or assessing others doesn't compare to our, our inability to judge God. However, what do we often do? We judge God. And it's not even unusual. And most of us, strangely, have drawn conclusions that he's not very good at what he does. Look at all the broken in the world. Look at all the wrong in the world. Look at all the unjust things that happen in the world. And we draw conclusions about God. We don't intend to. We say we love him. And, and we're sitting here. Just think what the world thinks of him. Don't want anything to do with him. They certainly don't believe he's good. The judgment that wisdom is referring to is not the judgment of others, but rather the judgment of God. 
This is a strange turn. Because we typically only think of judgment in the terms of what we do to each other. What the wisdom is dealing with here is you have judged God incorrectly. And if that doesn't get straightened up, you're not, you're, when he wants to bring healing to you. And here's this wonderful father that wants to bring something to you in the following scenes. And you're still judging him. What's the likelihood you're going to take it? You're not going to take it. If I'm still mad at him or bothered by him or misunderstand him, probably not going to happen. We cannot or will not turn to God for healing or receive it when he offers it if we're angry at him. We're unlikely to reach out to God when we have judged him and found him lacking. And strangely, again, unfortunately, most of us have. What's beginning to crumble here? What's falling apart for Mackenzie? His idea of God is falling apart here. His ability to judge is falling apart here. Those things by which he had stood on all his life, the thought that he needed to be punished, you know what I did. You hear him say it. You have something to confess, you know what I did. You see, he doesn't even have a concept of a God who forgives, of a God who restores, because the concept has been he's a God who punishes. That's the conclusion. He's a God who punishes, and I'm just waiting. As a matter of fact, we'll hear in a minute, he thinks maybe that the punishment's already come. We, we'll get to this point. God will bring us to the point where we'll realize our ability to judge is totally ineffective. He will, he will break it down piece by piece because he knows the devastating result of our judgments. So for Mackenzie, it's coming apart. There's always the necessary point to demonstrate to ourselves and to those with whom we minister that all judgment must stop. In deliverance, we must help others know that our assessment of someone's actions to determine appropriate action is not possible due to our inability to find an accurate conclusion. In repentance, we must recognize that our history and those of our past have no ability to be a mirror by which I can accurately see myself. All truth has to be revealed by him. So here's the swap we're beginning to see. The judgments of my mind exchanged for the clarity that he brings by his spirit. Again, one of the hardest things in ministering deliverance especially is getting people to believe that they actually are a victim. We have been, we have taught so long that in the world, you, you cannot function as a victim. We've been taught to rise above this victim thinking, but in deliverance, there will be no deliverance until you know that you're a victim. Someone did something. There was a moment of hurt that Satan capitalized on because if I don't bring you to the conclusion, the God revealed conclusion that someone hurt you, then all the effort will remain on you to fix it. There will be no, oh my goodness, this result, my life has been the result of the fact that someone hurt me, someone abused me, someone neglected me, someone molested me, someone ignored me. If we don't understand that there are those moments in our life, someone said something that Satan capitalized on, someone criticized me, someone ridiculed me, and Satan capitalized on that moment. But our conclusions, the judgments that we've come up with are leading us away from the healing that God wants to bring simply because we are, we're judging and making the assessments based on a history and especially the teaching that's brought us sadly to this place. Let's keep going. Wow. 
Don't be shocked if that's the person who walks into your, into your life. Don't be surprised if that's the conclusion that they have drawn. Can it be easily and readily recognized why this judgment of God stops all healing from taking place? Why has God never been able to restore him before? Bring healing before? Well, yeah, but this, this, whether, I'm sure he wanted it, but this judgment of God, the, the one that can, the only one who can bring the healing, what's the conclusion that McKenzie's drawn? It's his fault. It's his fault. You see, this is why this understanding of the difference between God being in charge and being God in control is such a powerful part of what we're understanding here. Because if, I, if, if, if God's in control, every awful thing becomes his fault. Free will is removed out of the story. Nobody actually had a choice because the person who killed this child must have been functioning somehow according to God's plan for this child to die at this, this young age and it'd be God's will. No. We've tried to peddle that for years. It won't sell. Trying to tell someone, turn to God. Why in the world would I turn to him? He's to blame. He did it. He's at fault. It's very well depicted when McKenzie says, you want me to say it? What's he been trying all these years not to say? That God's to blame. But there will be no change. There will be no great transformation until this is dealt with. And it's about to be seriously dealt with. I continued, this is why we work diligently to resolve our conflicts and heal our wounds by ourselves in the soul. We don't trust the one who indwells my spirit. I'm just going to mention quickly before I go on, this confrontation is necessary. Stopping judgment is necessary in all ways, but stopping our wrong assessment of the Father is absolutely critical. We may misjudge others, but our misjudging God is causing great devastation. Powerful confrontation. Now this doesn't teach, I don't, I don't want anybody to, be misunder, to misunderstand, this isn't teaching a universal salvation. This is teaching that God would by some choice say, I'm going to save these and I'm going to send these to hell. This doesn't say, say in this context that everyone's saved, it does say that everyone has a choice. It's not, it's, it's not God's condemnation. It's the rejection of the way that he brings them to that salvation. But what a powerful picture for any parent to be brought to this place. So are we shocked at McKenzie's response? No. Ever been in a place where your child is hurt? You immediately want to say, just get up and let me lay down in their place. That's the natural place of our love as a parent is to just take the place of our child. What's happening here? Mackenzie's judgment is crumbling. He's seeing strangely the flaws in it. How implausible it is for him to approach this from the, from the perspective that he has. But God knows. You can hear it knowing the outcome of what's coming in the movie. If you've seen it before, you can tell by the, by the move here, that if this doesn't happen, the scene that occurs next when McKenzie meets his father out in that field will not occur. This hardness in his heart, the judgment and the conclusions, the errors about God have to be dealt with. When someone walks into my office, you, you know, you, you hear this from me all the time. I did it again this past week was to just ask this person, you know, your two-year-old is sitting on your lap. And how does the conversation go when you say, you say, call him by name and say, you are so, and he said, man, I don't know if I can get words out. He said, because I don't think there's words to describe what I want to say. I don't think I've got words that, that could tell how I feel about this child that's in my lap. 
Okay, let's just change that for just a second. Let's put you in your heavenly father's lap. And he opens his mouth and begins to talk about you. And he says, you calls your name and says, you are so, and the first words out of his mouth were screwed up. Would you say this to your child? No. So how in the world do you have a better perspective than God does? You see, that's what's happening here. Wisdom is bringing McKenzie to the place to say, these are your kids. You're, you're saying this is what God does. Make a choice then. You're, just do what he does every day. And the confrontation is powerful and abrupt. About whom? Huh? No. No. About whom? The murderer. Now you know Papa's heart about the one who did what he did. She asked the question earlier, what about this one? Yeah, I damn him. What about the man who turned him into this deviant monster? I damn him too. What's the conclusion being drawn here? The one you're saying that you would do this? What's the father's heart? He said, Mackenzie, you have found that your children are worthy to be loved. See, because we're, we get to come to the mountain scene pretty quickly where the confrontation comes right back, right back to this moment. Think anybody in the world believes that? Anybody upset with God because of that perspective? Yeah, about every other person. Something bad has happened in their family and God's to blame. Why didn't God fix it? Why didn't God heal them? Why didn't God change it? Why didn't God touch? Why didn't God restore? Why wasn't he there? Why didn't he adjust? Why didn't he touch? Why didn't he move something? Very simple things. Why would God not do that for the person that I love? This is the rampant question in the doubting world and often in the world of faith in God. It's not just the world that has that doubt. It's people sitting in the pews Sunday by Sunday. When we want it for our benefit, we want God to be fully in control. I hear it, I hear it said a lot. It, it makes it very convenient to blame him or lose sight of him in brokenness. But the next comments continue it. This is the continuation of the same comments above. There is the very basic confusion about God. Did God cause her death to punish me? Find anything strangely wrong in that perspective of God? Yeah, but how many have been taught that? How many have been led to believe that that's really who God is, that that's the heart of God, that he's about the punishment? This common misconception leaves us in that great sorrow and shuts us out of, of our moves, shuts us out or moves us away from the healing and restoration that is always possible. You know, I get it, it's a movie. But I will tell you that at least 75% of the people who come into my office hold that conclusion. I'm guilty and God's angry. I'm guilty and I don't, I messed up, have to live with it. It's something I have to carry for the rest of my life. That's, that's three-fourths of the people who come into my office are, are struggling with that perspective And we stay in great sorrow. One of the most powerful things that occurs here. Notice in my notes. I'll just go there because I can do it quicker. We must get and keep Satan in the crosshairs of our most dynamic weapons. Healing and restoration will likely include others. 
but searching for and identifying the true enemy will lead to only one place. It's always Satan. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and darkness and dark places. We have to recognize she's doing a beautiful job here of making this explanation. This was not God's doing. That there is truly a force in this world that is evil. And in any time you're dealing with somebody who has true free will and they can choose to do this or they can choose to do this, then evil can find that way in. That's why we have to know in deliverance, in salvation, in repentance, in healing, whatever it is, we have one enemy. It's not my neighbor. It's not my friend. It's not my parents. It's not my children. It's not my wife. It's not my husband. We have one person in the crosshairs of every weapon that we're going to release, and it is Satan. Don't be confused. We're in a hunt for one, for one target and one target only. And when somebody who comes in to be ministered to and they don't know exactly what they're looking for, when you finally square up with them and say, it is Satan that we're going after. He was the cause. He was the one who spoke. He was the one who lied. He was the deceiver. He was the destroyer. He caused the division. He caused the doubt. He caused the fear. He said he would come to do it. Then we get him in the crosshairs and all we're waiting for now is to pull the trigger. We know when that happens in the movie. The better way involves trust. Do I? Yeah. How does it look practically? Well, and, and, and to recognize here that I... I can't evaluate him on what I see. I can't look around me and see the circumstances and situations and draw conclusions about God because what's the guarantee? I'm going to get it wrong. I can't look at what's happening in, in, in a family or in a situation, you know, deal, deal with people who are, who are facing death and who are experiencing death in family members. And, and we find ourselves in these very, very strange moments. And someone says, why didn't God do something? My answer is very consistent, very ready. He did the greatest thing he could possibly do. He gave his son so that you and I would never die. He gave his son so that we would understand that suffering would never become greater than us. He, 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 he gave that life so that we not only could be free then, but we can be free now by the spirit of Jesus who he sent to indwell us. You wonder if he did anything? He did everything. There was no stone left unturned, but he will not take away someone's free will. We find here the two positions in the spiritual struggle. The better way involves trust, knowing God and his heart, even when we can't see or can't understand. But if we are busy judging him, we will not trust him, and he is the only answer to our brokenness. Think the confrontation has worked? What do you think is harder? Him walking through that rock earlier? Or this moment? This moment is much harder. This is, this is undoing a lifetime of judgment, which he says, you've had a lifetime, you've been practicing. He's laying down a lifetime of judgment right here, saying, I don't want to be judged anymore. What do we call that? It's breakthrough. It's real breakthrough. When someone comes to that conclusion, I don't want to do anymore what only God can do. Here is the sought after moment. Judgment stops and eyes are open to see what we thought we were gone forever. When we ask him, trusting him, he will show us what we truly desire to see. He will, like, he will likely show us and give us answers beyond our questions why. 
I'm going to give you just a, a quick mention of something. When judgment stops, and I'm talking about stopping at this level, it's amazing how God can then open our eyes to see what we have never seen before. The judgment twists it. The judgment and the assessments contort it. But when that stops, we get to see what God sees. Please ask him. Please ask him to let you see in others what he sees. I did this this past week. Person in my office, heartbroken over some things. Heartbroken because of what their eyes saw. And they are heartbreaking things. Hard things. Things that would, that would be disturbing to any of us as, as an observer. For a friend or a family member, we would be sad and heartbroken. But I encourage this person. I said, when you go and when you see this person next, ask God to let you see this person the way he does. The beauty, the goodness, the kindness, the strength. And I get this text message a few hours later, and, she, and this lady said, I saw her as God sees her. I see her through the eyes of God. I will tell you everything changes in that moment because it doesn't change my concern. It doesn't change my regard. It doesn't change what I hope happens in the way that I pray. But when that person looks at me instead of seeing the despair that their condition causes me to see, they get to see something rise in me. They get to see hope. They get to see what, I, what, what the eyes of God says when he sees someone that's broken. Because what does that person need to see? The despair and the judgment of my eyes or in the hope and the love of his. He will show you every time you ask him if you'll turn off the judgment. He will show you what he sees. And I don't even have to make much of a claim. I can tell you the minute that you turn that assessment off, really off, and say, Lord, let me see, he will begin to flood your heart. Because the first thing that's going to rise in you is compassion, and you'll see what he begins to see. Letting go is always a challenge. I find it best to explain that letting go means and includes that God is ready to take it and provide the true healing and restoration so desperately sought. If we think we're giving something up, that seems like us. We have to tell them, the minute that you open your hands with it, God's willing to take it, and it's always an exchange. He will give you something of himself in the place of that which you just surrendered. Letting go of anger, frustration, bitterness, and it comes all of it born in judgment, all of it born in an assessment that we cannot make. I don't care how smart we think we are and in tune emotionally we are, we're not good enough to make that assessment and to open our hands and let it go. One of the hardest things that we ever do, but it will be much easier if you've encountered this moment as Mackenzie has. And I love the scene because it just depicts so well that when we let go of judgment, we can see what we long to see the most but could not ever seem to find. Quickly, a prominent teaching within this ministry is that Jesus came to uh, sever our past from us. 
He has no desire that we would be encumbered by the past that's now behind us. That is a profound part of ministry. You get it? There it is. Building to this summary, building to this point. You understand now that I am capable of doing great good in the midst of unbelievable tragedy, but it does not mean I orchestrated the tragedy. Man, I wish the Christian world would accept that and not fight it so hard. Because we could once and for all say to someone whose heart is broken, you can turn to God. He loves you. He didn't. This wasn't his idea. This wasn't his plan. This wasn't. I know that it flies in the face of years and years of historical teaching. I get it. I know why people don't jump on board quickly. But it's one of the more liberating things I've ever run across in my life to recognize that free will is truly free will. And I can do many things. I can make many decisions that affects my life. And he lets me. Because he's placed me in control. But anytime I mess up, and, and I don't care how severe the mess up is, I can go to the one in charge and he will establish my mistake into his glory. He's in charge. No thing is bigger. Nothing is out of his reach. Nothing is in the past, present, or future that can't be touched. He's in charge. But he strangely made me in control of one story. It can affect mine and many others, actually, if I choose to let it. We need that message, prominent and strong. I will do great good in the midst of great tragedy, but it does not mean I orchestrated the tragedy. Okay, that's where we'll, that's where we'll end. Our historical teaching that God is in control makes him responsible for every tragedy. Remember that. Every unfair act, every loss, every death, every diagnosis, and every other thing possible. And I simply want us to walk away with that judgment over and recognizing it is not so. Because I need to bring someone to a place where they'll trust God in just a few minutes, in a few hours in my office. I need to bring them to a place where they'll ask God to bring healing and restoration to their life and I can't get them there if they're mad at him. I can't get them to ask him if they don't fully know that he loves them and that he is ready as their father, as their papa, to bring healing and restoration. Can't get them there if they're blaming him for the brokenness in their story. A past has got to be put behind them so that, they can, so that they can actually pray in faith in the next week or the next two weeks or whenever it's going to be in their story when they say, God, would you? And to know by faith that he will. They won't ask and they won't receive it if they don't know his heart. This judgment and the conclusions have to be dealt with. Father, thank you tonight that you bring us to this point. It's a powerful one. As it's said in the movie, this is such a significant moment. Because we come expecting so little from you because we're so angry at you. So disappointed that you didn't answer. So just complacent because we, we felt complacency from you. We pray with very little faith, expecting very little. We don't anticipate much. But Father, I pray that that will change heart by heart, mind by mind, and spirit by spirit, one by one, even in a congregation in a body like this tonight, one by one, we begin to understand your heart, who you are, your, the Father that you are, the love you have for us, and the willingness at any time to bring healing to our broken story. Thank you, Father, for teaching us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.
Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.